Hello, and welcome to Bardcast, the Shakespeare podcast. I'm Carson. And I'm Jeff. And today we're doing an episode about Julius Caesar. The play, not the man. Yeah, sorry about the change of subject. I did notify everybody on the blog. Basically what happened was we found out that the local theater was putting on a production of it, and so we decided that we should do an episode about that instead of trying to rush out an Antony and Cleopatra and then do this. Mm Mm-hmm. It works out just fine, I think, because Julius Caesar does come right before Antony and Cleopatra, chronologically. And it even has some of the same characters. Although, really, they're not that well-connected in terms of plot. As we'll find, Julius Caesar is about a very brief moment in history. Antony and Cleopatra covers more of a whole saga. They're not connected to each other, except by the presence of Antony, really. And Octavian. Right. Also, an apology. Sorry we're late. This has taken a little longer than it should have. I have been sick for about a month and a half, and we did have to wait for the play to show. And I am, to admit, really lazy. (laughs) So anyway, on to the play. Mm -hmm. Julius Caesar is properly called The Tragedy of Julius Caesar. This is from the first folio. It's labeled and sorted in the tragedies. I don't think that's appropriate. Personally. Right. It it should be a history. I mean, it's an actual historical event. It's being that's being chronicled. Right. And histories have more of kind of a this is telling the story of the past where tragedies are more about they kind of have a specific format all of Shakespeare's tragedies where a great man rises to his his peak and then is undone by his faults and this is more kind of uh these are some things that happened mm-hmm. uh, from history and we do have sort of a man rises and falls but he's so dull yeah. that it doesn't really work as well Mm-hmm. The thing with the histories is they're all set in England. Right. When people say the histories, it's this series of kings of England. Mm-hmm. Uh, most of them in the robe. And then you've got the weird outliers of King John and Henry VIII, mm-hmm. which nobody talks about. Anyway, uh, people talk about the different sources that Shakespeare uses, but it really all comes down to one guy uh, who wrote popular history of the time named North, and he wrote translations of the histories of Rome. All of the stuff in this play is taken from his book on Julius Caesar, Antony, and Brutus. Mm -hmm. And And most of uh, the information from that that guy had was from uh, Plutarch. Right, it's just a translation. Yeah. So... Um, He does make historical errors, and those errors are basically transcribed by Shakespeare into the play. Mm -hmm. And and some some of the errors, like, I did the quote thing again, sorry. Uh, But a lot of what Shakespeare does is just slim things down chronologically to make it easier to do as a play. Okay, so publications, like I said earlier, this is just from the folio. There mm-hmm. is no it, original printing from Shakespeare's day. Uh, there are some quartos printed, but those were long after the folio and almost mm-hmm. certainly based purely on the folio. So we only have one source for this one. Another interesting thing about it is that there is no explicit scene deviations in the play, like in the folio. Right. It instead just says that people leave the scene and then other people enter the scene, which therefore in any modern play will say be the ending of one scene and the beginning of the next scene. But the play itself simply says, scene one, and then goes through the entire act like that. Mm -hmm. So whenever you read a change of scene in this, it is purely the addition of the editor. It can be more or less reasonable, but there is no input by Shakespeare or his contemporaries. There are still clear act deviations, though. Yeah. all, All Shakespeare plays in the folio are divided into five acts. 
in throughout history, this has been regarded as one of Shakespeare's better plays. Mm-hmm. Not one of the amazing ones, but a good one. Right, top fifty percent, I think is how yeah. people would say it. Um, especially the appeal comes from the dr- drama of it, not through the brilliant character work. There are good speeches, but there is fantastic sense of scale. Like it's you know the fall of an empire and mm-hmm. armies and riots and mobs. It's Dictators being murdered by senators. Right. Oh, spoiler alert. It's a great theater piece because there's so much going on. Big stakes, big people. Mm-hmm. Big speeches. Right. Big ham. The characterization is a little weak, but that's why we. it's not one of the A-plus plays. Mm-hmm. One of the other criticisms, much more mild, is that it's bad history. Shakespeare makes a lot of relatively inconsequential errors. From the quotes in the play that refer to Shakespearean clothing, such as a jerkin, we can actually take it that Shakespearean actors didn't dress up like Romans when they did the play, which seems so strange to us. The idea mm-hmm. of people saying, oh yes, I am a Roman senator, and they're just dressed in like Shakespearean clothing. It seems very strange to me. He also mentions the clock. Yeah. Uh, at various times in the play, they refer to the what o'clock it is, which is kind of okay because they did have timekeeping in Julius Caesar's time, but they actually specifically refer to clocks being around, which wouldn't be invented for centuries, possibly over a thousand years. I'm not exactly sure of that one. And there were primitive clocks like all over the place, but they weren't in you know yeah, widespread. They use. don't have town halls with the clocks that ring out the exactly. hour every hour like they do in Shakespeare's time. And then he just messes around with the dates a lot. Right. If someone were to watch this play and you were to ask them afterwards how much time was covered, they might say a week. Mm-hmm. They could even go down to maybe three days. Depending on how quickly some of the events take place. Right, because Shakespeare gives this feeling that we're in a, in constant motion, that something's always going on, and there are these kind of allusions to how little time has gone on throughout it. And when people just walk off the stage and come back on, you don't really get an impression that two weeks have passed or a month have passed. Mm-hmm. Like, there's one big time gap, as far as we can tell, and that's just between the whole murder scene and the whole battle scene. Right. There is... And that's the one time gap where they explicitly state, let's wait a night. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there is there is a bit at the beginning that should take 15 days, and it seems like no time has passed at all. There is actually two battles in history that Shakespeare compresses down to one battle. Mm-hmm. And he actually does mention these things. A Shakespearean cri- critic has described this idea as double time, where he does make allowances for the real historical passage of time sometimes, but... For the purposes of the play, he keeps the mood of the play continuously moving. Mm -hmm. So someone that was being very carefully noting the time would be able to say, okay, that's relatively accurate. But someone that is just watching the play still gets this feeling of Mm -hmm. imminence and everything happening at once. Of course, an average viewer would never bother to think, okay, so if he said that it's the Ides of March now... And it was three days ago that this other thing happened. That would make today Friday. Yeah. Like an average viewer or any person that isn't crazy doesn't do that sort of math when they're watching a play. Okay. So, uh, Jeff. Yep. What would you say Julius Caesar is about? Hmm. It's not. It's a trick question. I would say that's a difficult question to answer. Okay. The murder of Julius Caesar. Okay. How about this? Who is Julius Caesar about? Oh, that's easy. Julius Caesar. Oh, it is not about Julius Caesar. The play, The Tragedy of Julius Caesar, is in fact about Brutus. What? Tell me more. Yeah. Julius Caesar dies at the beginning of the third act, 
and appears briefly as a ghost for no reason whatsoever. To make Brutus feel bad. Yeah, but Brutus is extant throughout the entire play. He's in the first scene, he dies in the last scene, He's the driving force. He's the main character. He's the one who we see rise and fall. Yeah. Caesar rose before the start of the play and only fell in the middle of it. Yeah. Apparently there's been some arguments throughout Shakespearean critical history about who the protagonist of this play is. Those people are crazy. Yeah. I mean, you could make an argument that Mark Antony is the protagonist, but you'd be wrong there, too. Yeah. Mark Antony is certainly more interesting than Brutus or uh, Caesar, but he's only there as an active force at the very end of the play. Brutus is the protagonist of this play, period, no question whatsoever. Which is not to say he's in any way the good guy. Or even an interesting guy. Right. He's kind of just a dumb guy who uh, gets tricked into killing his best friend. No, I think I think he d- does it on a principled thing, but we'll get into that later. Yeah. So anyway, the themes of this play are about justice and what is right to do and mm-hmm. taking the priority of personal righteousness over larger principles, which is mm-hmm. what Brutus is dealing with throughout the play. Right, whether it's right to murder his best friend to protect the liberty of Rome. Mm-hmm. He wants his only interest in the play is being a good person. Right. Being perfectly virtuous. He wants to be an honorable man. Yeah, and his attempts to try to figure out what is the exact right thing to do is what gets him into trouble throughout the play. Mm -hmm. I mean, if he were just a a schemer like all the other conspirators, the conspirators would have done much better. Yeah. So anyway, another theme that we see in this play is Shakespeare's contempt for the average person, especially in this one scene that we'll get to. Mm -hmm. We see that Shakespeare thinks that an average person in a mob is incredibly easy to trick and win over to your side. This is echoed by real historical events. Yeah. Yeah, but Shakespeare clearly does not have any estimation for the average person. Okay, so this is set in Rome, obviously. Yeah. Rome, the city, especially in the area around the Senate, and then later on on the battlefield of Philippi. Right, which is also in the nation of Rome at the time. Yes. So not a whole lot of moving around. It's really just in the city and on the battlefield. Mm-hmm. So for the characters, first we've got Julius Caesar. He is... The a victorious commander who has just returned back to Rome. He's well-loved by the people. Some suspect he has imperial ambitions. <laughs> <laughs> like everyone. Everyone thinks he has imperial ambitions, and but people know that the mob is not a fan of imperial ambitions either. Right. The, the interesting thing about Julius Caesar in this play is that he's almost entirely presented as a mask. The only thing that Julius Caesar talks about to a great deal or is concerned with is his own self-image. He's always saying... Do you think I'm like this? I'm not. Or he's afraid that he'll be seen as afraid. So he goes to the Senate when there is possible doom there. Mm -hmm. We never see him open. We never see him reveal himself to the audience. Another reason that he's not the protagonist of the play. Right. He's, uh... He's this sort of imposing, distant figure that comes off as kind of weak in the way that he's always concerned about his own self-image. Mm-hmm. But like everyone knows he's also incredibly uh, powerful in a way, too, because yeah. they're all worried that he is going to take over the nation. Mm-hmm. They, so And they're intent on defending the uh, power of the Senate, which is, at the time, a, a weak and corrupt body. Yeah, although they don't really get much into the politics of Rome at the time, which I think is kind of a problem with the play, because you don't get a feeling of what the stakes are. Especially if you're living in Elizabethan times, when it's like, we have a queen, that's awesome! Right. The idea of the parliament taking over would be kind of 
crazy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then that happens in real history, uh, like 50 years later. Right. Anyway, Julius Caesar has a wife named Calpurnia. She shows up in one scene, essentially. Mm-hmm. And, and we'll she has bad that. dreams. Yeah. Mark Antony is, as we said earlier, shows up near the end of the play, where he basically takes over the play. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's much more interesting. He is uh, basically a good friend of Caesar, though Brutus and the conspirators view him as a lapdog, as a sort of. Right. He's a man of passions and action. He's military. Uh, he's not a good public speaker, as he puts it himself. Yeah, well, we'll see about that. He has a friend who is Julius Caesar's adopted son named Octavian. I wouldn't say they're a friend so much as a... F- Ally. Yeah. Yeah. Not much of a character in this. Yeah. But he's supposed to be Caesar's heir. Yeah. Uh, that brings us over to the protagonist, Brutus. Mm-hmm. He is a senator of Rome, or a praetor, technically. Yeah. And his entire thing is honor and doing the right thing. Mm-hmm. Even if he doesn't know what that is. Right. And the thing with a lot of characters in this play is that they're easily swayed into doing things, so they look kind mm-hmm. of stupid. Uh, Julius Caesar has this a lot, and Brutus has this a lot. And the mob has this a lot. Yeah. So Brutus comes off as kind of a dope who's more concerned with his own personal honor than anything else, really, which mm-hmm. allows people to mess around with him. Yeah, Brutus has a wife named Portia who is, from from what we see of her, she basically just feels neglected by the fact that Brutus is suddenly having all these secret meetings. So yeah, she doesn't have much of a role in the play, uh, other than to show a little bit of Brutus's warmer side to her. Mm. And then Brutus has several st- uh, servants as well, the main one being Lucius. Yeah, and then there are the conspirators, the f- the primary member of whom is Cassius. Who is variously portrayed as uh, either incredibly sneaky kind of, yeah. uh, Iago-like villainy, to being genuinely concerned with the people of Rome, but knowing that he doesn't have the charisma to uh, bring them together, so he needs Brutus for that. Yeah, Cassius is actually the person who drives the events of the play, at least initially. Mm-hmm. He's the one who convinces Brutus that they should do something and what they should do very early on. And then there are a variety of other conspirators. The only really important one is Casca. Who is one of Julius Caesar's men and is convinced to join the conspiracy to assassinate Julius Caesar. He has a very blunt tone that is probably makes him one of the more charming characters in the play. Mm-hmm. And his main importance is he's the one who strikes the first blow against Caesar as well. Mm. So we've got minor characters. Then there's the soothsayer. Yeah, he does have an important role in the play. He's trying to warn Julius Caesar about his upcoming death, but Mm -hmm. we'll see how that goes. Yeah, he appears twice, I believe. Yeah. And then there's the mob. Yeah, the mob is a real character in this play, although it only shows up in one large scene. It reflects all of Rome, essentially. The people of Rome. Mm -hmm. And it would have been really interesting to see how they would have done that back then. That is a good point. Like, did they just have one guy uh, shouting off stage, or? Well, I think that since Shakespeare's theater is known to have a balcony, what they would do is have the speakers on the balcony and then a bunch of players on the main stage. So they've got the one person way up high, just a mass of people on the stage proper. Oh, I see what you mean. Yeah. All right. Okay. So let's look at this plot. So basically, what happens is Brutus is this noble man who goes with this conspiracy to assassinate Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar is so proud and concerned with looking good that he walks right into the trap and gets assassinated. Then Antony and Brutus go to war against each other, and Brutus commits suicide at the end of the battle when they realize they're going to lose. Mm -hmm. More stuff happens, but that's the gist. Yeah. So Act 1 
is about the conspirators assembling. It starts with Cassius winning over Brutus to the conspiracy. Mm -hmm. They're standing around and realizing that the mob loves Caesar so much that he could take power if he really wanted to. Right. And this is where the soothsayer says to Julius Caesar, beware the Ides of March, which is definitely a famous... The Ides of March is uh, March 15th, by the way. Yeah, it's the middle of March. Because Romans had weird names for all like the little parts of months for some reason. Mm -hmm. And so... Caesar gets the warning and kind of just dismisses it. Brushes it off. He has no interest in anything that would make him seem vulnerable in any way. Mm -hmm. When Brutus is being convinced by Cassius, Cassius describes Julius as bestriding the narrow world like a colossus, and we petty men walk under his huge legs and peep about to find ourselves dishonorable graves. Men at some time are masters of their fates. The fault, dear Brutus, is not in our stars, but in ourselves, that we are underlings. Mm -hmm. So saying, Julius Caesar has taken over, this is not fate, this is not in our stars, because Shakespearean people believed in the idea of astrology governing their lives. Mm -hmm. This is not in our stars, this is in ourselves that we have this fate of being under Julius Caesar. Mm -hmm. They go on a little bit more, Brutus isn't wholly convinced, but then they talk to Casca, who has just watched... uh the citizen, uh, Mark Antony offer uh, Julius Caesar the crown, a crown, not like just the crown, just a crown, like a kind of a showy, showy thing. So you could still say that he wasn't trying to be king, but the implication is definitely mm -hmm. there. And he says that uh, he was. It looked like he was going to take it, but then he relented when it looked like the mob was upset with him trying to take it. Yeah, but his refusal to take the crown makes him look good exactly. to the people. Julius Caesar, looking upon the conspirators, not knowing what they're thinking about, says about Cassius. Let me have men about me that are fat, sleek-headed men, and such at sleep o' nights. Yon Cassius has a lean and hungry look. He thinks too much. Such men are dangerous. And goes on to say, uh, would that he were fatter. He hears no music. Seldom he smiles, and smiles in such a sort as if he mocked himself and scorned his spirit that could be moved to smile at anything. Such men as he be never at heart's ease while they behold a greater than themselves. I'd rather tell thee what is to be feared than what I fear, for always I am Caesar. So even then he's concerned more about, I'm not afraid. Theoretically, someone else could be afraid of this. You know, if you feel like it. Yeah. From that description, I get this impression that Cassius could be a fun character to play, this sort of mm -hmm. ambitious, fast-moving, uh, very critical person. Mm -hmm. I also like Casca's uh, short speech. He basically just says that uh, Caesar fell down in the crowd as if in a faint because he was so uplifted by the crowd's spirits. Right. There's a thought that Julius Caesar had epilepsy. Mm -hmm. And this would be an example of that occurring in a crowd, which two Romans would be like saying that you're cursed by the gods and therefore a bad yeah. person. And then and Casca says, but they cheered him anyways, but that doesn't matter. They would have cheered if he'd murdered their own mothers. Yeah. <laughs> That is a great line. And of course, this conversation with Casca is where Casca says that a speech that was in Greek is all Greek to me. Yeah, I had no idea that came from Shakespeare. Yep. Uh, if anything that you don't understand is completely incomprehensible, the expression is, it was all Greek to me, straight from Shakespeare. And then there's a scene later that night where they, all the conspirators start meeting. Yeah. And go to Brutus's house. Throughout Act 1 and Act 2, we see a lot of stuff that Shakespeare is very fond of, where if someone very important is about to die, there are portents, there are signals in the sky, there is a asteroids and, Comet. and dogs breeding with lions and producing monkeys. This, is, this isn't something that happens in the play, but it's the sort of thing that would happen. In this one, 
you've got a slave that holds up his hand that that it looks like it's on fire and yet his hand was not on uh, burned in any way mm-hmm. you know something a magic trick could do pretty easily at, at the capital they found a lion people swore that they saw men on fire walking up and down the streets that the bird of night did sit even at noonday upon the marketplace hooting and shrieking the idea of shakespeare's time is that great men's deaths are presaged by these crazy events. Of course, there's never any contemporary evidence for these things. Right. It's That's just the culture of the time. As you say, the conspirators uh, kind of set upon their purpose of assassinating Caesar. And because Brutus isn't totally convinced yet, Cassius writes a bunch of letters from the people and throws them into Brutus's window. Yeah, from different angles, basically saying, remember that you are Brutus, the uh, descendant of the original Brutus to toss a king out of Rome. So do your job this time, too. So basically he's just doing everything he can, because uh, the conspiracy needs Brutus to lend it kind of a credibility. Brutus is the honorable man. Mm-hmm. That could be the face of the movement. So, Act 2. Brutus is swayed in this act. He yep. completely decides to go along with it. The conspiracy arrives on it at his house, and Brutus makes the most important decision of the play... And the same one of the most important decisions of the play. Okay, his most important decision of the play, the one that shows who he is as a character, which is to say, dumb. <laughs> they will not kill Mark Antony or any of Julius Caesar's other loyalists because they want to show that this is just them trying to prevent a tyrant from taking over and not a coup or anything like that. Yeah, Brutus is so convinced of the value of virtue and the value of principles that he believes that the ordinary person, seeing that they simply assassinate Julius Caesar and no one else, the the people will say, oh, Brutus is a man of virtue and we should trust him. Mm -hmm. He has a good line about not assassinating anyone else. Alas, Caesar must bleed for it. Gentle friends, let's kill him boldly, but not wrathfully. Let's carve him as a dish fit for the gods, not hew him as a carcass fit for hounds. We shall be called perjurers, not murderers. And for Mark Antony, think not of him, for he can do no more than Caesar's arm when Caesar's head is off. Which turns out not to be true. Mm -hmm. And we'll find that out in the next act. Yeah. Uh, Act 2 is also where we see the closest thing to Caesar revealing himself in any way. Uh, even in the scene with his wife, he's still mm-hmm. very much the man trying to put on a mask, put on a show that makes him look good. Essentially, his wife says to him, I've had these terrible dreams. There are all these portents out there showing that you will die. I had a dream of you dying specifically, a statue of you foaming blood. And all of these portents only occur when famous people die, not when poor people die. Mm-hmm. Initially, Caesar is unswayed by this. He says, What can be avoided whose end is purposed by the mighty gods? Yet Caesar shall go forth. So he's still saying about himself, Look how great I am. I don't care. He also says, Cowards die many times before their deaths. The valiant never taste of death but once. Mm -hmm. Of all the wonders that I yet have heard, it seems to me most strange that men should fear, seeing that death, a necessary end, will come when it will come. Mm-hmm. So then Calpurnia convinces him, just and he basically out of concern for her. Yeah, like, fine, if you're going to keep worrying, I'll stay at home today. Right, I think that's the only real bit of Shakespeare's character that we see, that he truly does care about his wife. Mm-hmm. One of the conspirators. Arrives and tries to change his mind, initially simply asking, why should I tell the Senate that you aren't coming? But then upon hearing that it's about her dream reinterprets the dream. He says, no, no, it's not a bad dream, it's a good dream. Your statue, 
oozing blood and everyone going crazy and taking the blood is simply about how everyone will get richness from you, essentially, mm-hmm. which is obviously insane. But Caesar, you know, just is looking for an excuse to get out of the house anyways. So he's like, yes, exactly. See? Yeah. There's also a scene with Brutus and Portia, his wife, where she basically is just wondering why all these strange masked men keep coming into her house at night. Yeah, the conspiracy leaves, and so it's simply Brutus and Portia, and she insists that he tell her what's going on, eventually cutting herself in the thigh, where you are obviously very vulnerable to dying of bleeding, Mm -hmm. uh, to convince him that she is brave, which compels him to decide to reveal his secrets. Mm -hmm. Which then has absolutely no consequence whatsoever, actually. None at all. Before Act 3, there's sort of this anticipation. There's There's a bit where they're setting up the scene. We know that Caesar has agreed to go, and we know that Artemidorus is going to stand in Caesar's path and and be there to deliver a letter that says, Caesar, these men are conspirators. You must look after yourself. Mm-hmm. And and we know that the soothsayer knows it's going to happen. So we have these details leading up to Act 3, this tension. Is the letter going to be delivered? Will Shakespeare go along with the history that everyone on Earth knows? <laughs> <laughs> or is he going to pull an inglorious bastards on us? Yeah, and, and change history. So... Act 3 begins. It starts off with Caesar go- specifically with the soothsayer saying, the Ides of March have come. And then the soothsayer says, ah, oh, but the day's not over yet. Yeah. It starts off with Artemidorus saying, please, please read this letter. It is about you and it is very important. But Caesar, always putting on this front, says, if it's about me, then I will read it last. Because I am this man who is- cares about Rome more than myself. Mm-hmm. The, the format for the assassination goes like this. Each member of the conspiracy says to Caesar, please free this man. One of the conspirators' brothers. Yeah. It doesn't matter who the person is, really. What matters is that Caesar again puts on a front and says that he cannot be moved. He is constant as the northern star. Yet in the number I do know but one that unassailable holds on his rank, unshaked of motion, and that I am he. Let me a little show it, even in this, that I was constant... Basically, he says, no, I'm not going to release your brother. And I am such a man that can never be convinced. Mm -hmm. And when they continue, when they finally petitioned him four or five times, Casca says, speak hands for me, drawing his sword, and they all stab Caesar. Mm Mm-hmm. And Caesar issues one of the most famous lines yeah, after in any sees play that ever. Brutus is stabbing him. He says, "A tu, Brute, then, then fall, Caesar." A tu, Brute means you also, Brutus. Yeah, and then fall, Caesar. This is an invention of William Shakespeare. Yes, but it's an awesome change on history. Right. The historians, there are two people that actually chronicle the fall of Caesar directly. One of them says that he says nothing. Neither of them say then fall, Caesar. No. Uh, what the other one says, basically, that he said, you also my son, because yeah. Brutus was kind of like his, you know, protege sort of thing. They were very close. Yeah. Which you also don't get a feel for in this play. I feel like there's a lot of raw material here that Shakespeare mm-hmm. misses. And, it, you know, he's trying to get a lot into a littler play, because right. this, this isn't even one of his longer plays. This is uh, in the bottom 25% of brevity. It's uh, That means shortness. 
Yeah, it's definitely one of the shorter plays. So they stab uh, Caesar to death. And initially, they're very excited. They think, okay, we've won. This is over. Yeah, the people are going to hail us as heroes for killing a tyrant. Yeah, uh, right after the next line after Caesar dying is, Liberty, freedom, tyranny is dead. Run hence, proclaim, cry it about the streets. So they think they've won already. And then Brutus convinces them all to like dip their hands in Caesar's blood to show that they're heroes who have killed him or something. Yeah. We mentioned that we saw this at the theater. It really bothered me that they didn't bother doing anything with blood. Antony mm-hmm. even says your stinking hands like s- covered in blood and they're just standing there without any... They rolled up their shirt sleeves <laughs> <laughs> to show that they had blood on their hands. Yeah, I and, guess. and the lights were tinted red at the time, so... You, it was very obvious that they did not have blood on their hands. Yeah, well, and that's they, an easy special effect to do. Mm-hmm. I think they just didn't want to ruin this, the outfits. Yeah, which we'll get to later. Those outfits. So they call upon Mark Antony to show up here so that they can basically work out a peace between them. Mm-hmm. And they promise, don't worry, we won't kill you. Yeah, so Antony shows up and immediately turns to Caesar, gives this great eulogy which I encourage anyone to read. Basically, this entire scene, once Antony shows up, the play gets much better. Yeah. <laughs> because Antony's such a great character. I'd read anything mm-hmm. uh, that he has his dialogue, I would suggest for anybody. Mm-hmm. But yeah, he, he shows up, and then after, you know, mourning Caesar for a bit, says, oh, and uh, I'm totally on your side, guys. I'm not going to cause any trouble. I will absolutely go along with anything you want. He begs permission to give a speech alongside Brutus's speech, at at Caesar's funeral. And they uh Brutus all the conspirators are like no way man no way. That He's is a, a mo- terrible idea. And Brutus says no no you can do this as long as you promise not to criticize us. Right. He says say that we allowed you to do this. Don't say anything against the conspiracy and you can give this speech. And Brutus's thought is people will see that we are principled men when we allow Antony to speak and Antony is unharmed. Mm-hmm. It's his kind of idealism, thinking that everyone feels like him about principles yeah. being the most important thing. And meanwhile, like, everyone else in the conspiracy is just shaking their head, but we gotta go along with it, it's Brutus. Yeah. Mark Antony, I think you get the feeling that Mark Antony is sort of a sincerely passionate person, because he's swayed twice by looking upon Julius Caesar's body into just a memorial speech impromptu, while he's technically agreeing to go against Julius Caesar. Mm-hmm. So I like the idea of playing Antony as a sort of honest, kind of blunt person. Then the conspirators go off to wave their bloody hands around. Yeah, Antony turns yet again to Caesar's body. This play probably has more speeches to corpses than any other play Um, of Shakespeare's. I'd have to look into that, but yeah. Well, they're all the same corpse. Yeah, and they're all Antony. (laughs) Well, Brutus gets one. Sure. Antony has another great speech to Caesar where... He revokes everything that he just said, that he is actually quite furious and is quite willing to have tons of people die for the sake of revenge. Domestic fury and fierce civil strife shall cumber all the parts of Italy. Blood and destruction shall be so in use and dreadful objects so familiar that mothers shall but smile when they behold their infants quartered with the hands of war. All pity choked with custom of fell deeds, and Caesar's spirit ranging for revenge, with Ate by his side, come hot from hell, shall in these confines with a monarch's voice cry havoc, and let slip the dogs of war. That this foul deed shall smell above the earth with carrion men groaning for burial. 
So he's not just saying, I will have revenge. He's saying, I will destroy Italy for this. I will kill anyone who gets in the way of my revenge, basically. Yeah. The world will be so devastated that it will be hell on earth with revenge and Caesar's ghost terrorizing the populace. Mm-hmm. Great speech. They take the body to the marketplace, which is the main gathering place for mobs and such. Yeah, Brutus gets the first speech. It's very technical. He essentially says, if any of you wanted to be a slave, then I've offended you because Caesar would turn you into slaves. If any of you hated justice, if any of you were bad people, essentially, then I offended you. But none of you wanted that. I have offended no one. I regretted killing Caesar as a man, but I would again kill him as a principal, as a tyrant. Mm -hmm. The mob is just like, yeah, Brutus, turns out you're awesome after all. Yeah, you've offended none of us. We should build a statue for you. (laughs) (laughs) That's actually a line, too. He specifically says that he weeps for Caesar, you know, Mm -hmm. as the person that he loved, but he couldn't allow him to live. And then they wheel in Julius Caesar's body with Antony alongside it. And he says, now Antony is here. He's here to show that we are not bad men because he is still alive. We haven't molested him in any way. And I'm even going to allow him to speak as a show of trust and of my own principles. Mm -hmm. And then he, you know, leaves. Yeah, he just walks (laughs) away and says, nobody come with me. Everybody make sure to listen to Mark Antony. This one's going to be good. And then Antony gets up and starts off with, Friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. I come to bury Caesar, not to praise him. That's the famous part of the speech that you've probably heard. Yeah, great speech. Really long, though, so we're not going to do the whole thing. His format is to say, You remember how great Julius Caesar was. Well, Brutus says he wasn't. And he killed him. And we all know Brutus is an honorable man. So... If you read it literally, he's saying, trust Brutus, he's an honorable man. But of course, the mob takes it as, wait, maybe Brutus isn't such an honorable man. eh?" Right, it's just full of biting sarcasm, basically. Yeah. And then he goes on and says, and do you guys remember when Caesar turned down that crown? He's great. But Brutus says he was ambitious, and Brutus is an honorable man. Oh, I'm not trying to turn you against Brutus here. We love Brutus. I would hate to turn you against Brutus. In fact, I have Julius Caesar's will here. If you were to hear what was in this will, <laughs> you would hate Brutus so much. It would drive you insane. And of course, the mob being played like an instrument says, we must hear the will. And he's like, no, I couldn't possibly <laughs> ever tell you what was in this will because it's so great that you just mm-hmm. would be driven out of control by it. And try and kill Brutus, and we don't, I don't want that. Yeah. And they're like, no, no, they're traitors. And still playing the innocence, he says, let's just look upon Julius Caesar's body. And they they all, you know, the, the crowd comes up and he comes down. And they open up the coffin. He's like, look upon these terrible wounds that this great man has suffered by these honorable people. So they get into a, the mob is already in a frenzy at this point, driven to rage by the death of Julius Caesar. And they're shouting, revenge, revenge. And, and, and he's he like, says, wait, 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 wait. There's still the will. <laughs> You're not angry enough yet. And so he reads the will, which basically says that everyone gets the modern equivalent of anywhere from 1000 to $10,000, depending on how you measure it. A big, a, a bunch of Caesar's estates are going to be converted into public parks. Yeah, he gives a huge uh, tracts of land. The mob is, of course, furious and basically decides to take over the entire city, 
killing all the conspirators and enemies they can find. And then uh, Anthony, they've all left, and it's like, well, that worked well. <laughs> <laughs> Servant comes up and says that Octavius has come to Rome, and that he and Lepidus, who is the third member of their triumvirate conspiracy sort of thing. Yeah, counter-conspiracy. Lepidus is kind of just a military guy who's really solid and boring. We'll get to him in a moment. And then we actually get a great scene to kind of show what the riot is Mm -hmm. with the death of Cinna the poet. Because one of the conspirators is also named Cinna. So the mob descends upon Cinna and starts accusing him and questioning him. And he says, well, I'm Cinna. And they're like, you're Cinna? And they started assaulting him and he says, I'm Cinna the poet. And because the fury of the mob is such, they decide to kill him as a poet just because he's not a good one. Mm Mm-hmm line earlier where they're like, are you a married man or a bachelor? And he eventually says, I'm a bachelor. And I said, that's as much as to say that they are fools that marry. <laughs> right. They, so they, they're just looking for reasons to kill him. Exactly. The, the rage is such upon the city that they'll kill anyone for anything. And this is just showing the dogs of war, how mm-hmm. awful it is, even in just the culling of the city. Act four is where uh, Antony and Octavius and Lepidus have taken the city, essentially. Mm-hmm. They're dividing Rome between them. Well, working on lists of people they're going to have to execute. Yeah. Octavian and Antony wait until Lepidus re- leaves the room uh, to basically talk about how much contempt they have for Lepidus. Mm-hmm. Uh, Octavian uh, says, you may do your will, but he's a tried and valiant soldier. And then Antony replies, so is my horse, Octavius. And for that, I do appoint him store of provender. I thought it was provender. I don't know how to pronounce things. I believe it's provender, but I'm I don't sure. know what it means anyways. It's food. So he basically says, Lepidus is like a horse. I'll feed him. But mm-hmm. he shouldn't get a, for- a portion of the Roman Empire. He shouldn't get respect. He's just a guy. They're planning how to destroy Brutus. Mm-hmm. And, and they also mentioned that all the uh, conspirators were seen riding out of Rome as fast as possible. Right. They're building up an army, so they have to raise up their own army to defeat them. Then it cuts back to Brutus's uh, camp. And Brutus and Cassius in scene three have a falling out. Essentially, Cassius has failed the high principled standards of Brutus by selling out position. Because the conspir- the rebellion needs money to properly rebel. Yeah. And Brutus is I- enraged by the idea that someone would sell part of the revolution. Always more concerned with his particular honor than the day-to-day workings of an organization. Which actually makes him kind of similar to Caesar in a lot of ways. Right, but you get the idea with... With Caesar, it's about appearances. With Brutus, it's about doing what he feels is right. Yeah, it's his self-worth, where for Caesar, everything is about the show that he puts on in this Mm -hmm. play. Everything is what he looks like. For Brutus, everything is about what he is. It's not about what other people see. Although he he just innocently believes that everyone will see him as the principled man that he believes himself to be, with uh, no kind of suspicion of the outside world. Mm -hmm. And they argue for a bunch and then make up uh, and say, with both of them kind of like just apologizing. It's almost like a lover's quarrel in a lot of ways. That's true. I hadn't thought about that, but you're right. Like, uh, one of them's really mad at the other, and then they argue, and they start blaming each other for things, and then at the end they're like, ah, but we've got to stay together, because... The, the, they've got to win the war, if nothing else. Yeah. So, they actually have some neat military talk, where they talk about the various virtues and problems about uh, advancing to this battlefield called Philippi, mm-hmm. where... Essentially, the argument is between should we rest here where we would be, you know, well rested or should we advance now because they're building up an army and the longer we wait, the better able they'll be able to win. It's very accurately uh, described military strategy. 
they also hear that uh, Brutus's wife has died. So actually, not a whole lot happens in this act. It's more mm-hmm. just laying out the new what this new subject is about, because the initial three acts are about the assassination. Yeah. And they also hear that uh, 70 senators have been put to death, yeah. uh, including Cicero, who is a very famous historical person. So with the deaths of these senators and Antony taking over the city and stuff, Act fi- 4 and 5 are like a different world. Mm-hmm. It's a different setting. And also, suddenly, uh, after Brutus is trying to go to sleep, a ghost shows up. Yeah, this is a very odd, silly scene mm-hmm. where Shakespeare's love of ghosts takes over the play for a little bit. Mm-hmm. Basically, Julius Caesar's ghost comes to Brutus. They don't even have anything important to say. Uh, Brutus is obviously shocked by the appearance of the ghost, but... Mm-hmm. And the ghost just says, I'll see you again soon, on the battlefield. Right. He says who he is, and that he'll see at Philippi. Then repeats that he'll be at Philippi, and then he leaves. Mm-hmm. So Act 5 is the Battle of Philippi. They do have a brief meeting saying, shall we have the battle? What's well, a a meeting there? between Octavius and Antony and uh, Brutus and Cassius. Yeah. Should we do this? What's going to happen? They agree to fight, and the battle happens. I think the battle scene is actually kind of tedious. Yeah, I mean, because it's... Well, battle scenes are hard to tell what's going on a lot of the time. Right. But I think that my main issue with it is, in Macbeth, we know what we feel about the people. Uh, We know that we kind of sympathize with Macbeth because he's a desperate man who's driven by ambition, but we believe in the other man because he's driven by justice. And we get a feeling for how the battle is going by Macbeth's increasing desperation. And here, we just... We know that a battle is happening, but that's it. We don't really mind if Brutus wins or loses because he's so uninteresting. Yeah, and, and so stuff moves on to later in the battle. At this point, uh, Cassius and his, some of his friends are like uh, running down a quarry, supposedly, or something like that, and they think Brutus has been killed. Yeah. So they're like, well, we have lost, but we can't let ourselves be taken captive or anything, so I'm going to kill myself. Yep, they run upon their swords. And Cassius actually says, uh, basically, that... Uh, Caesar, thou art avenged, even with the sword that killed thee. Because he kills himself with the same thing he killed Caesar with. Nice little uh, detail there. It turns out that they're losing even more, so Brutus decides to kill himself. Mm -hmm. And after the death of Brutus, the good guys, I guess, I don't know if you call them good guys or not, but Antony and Octavius arrive, and... Antony, for some reason, <laughs> decides that he should give a little memorial speech for Brutus, even though you get the feeling that he didn't even really like Brutus that yeah, much. Yeah, he says that Bru- this was the noblest Roman of them all. All the conspirators, save only he, did that they did in envy of great Caesar. He only, in a general honest thought and common good to all, made one of them. His life was gentle and the elements so mixed in him that nature might stand up and say to all the world, this was a man. Yeah, very Very complimentary speech. This was the noblest Roman of them all. Mm -hmm. And I think the main failing of this play is a failure to show that, is a failure to make him look like the noblest Roman of them all. Or even an interesting Roman. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, so that's the play. Um, There's a lot of great action, a lot of great passions. And let's talk about how people have looked at it. Yeah, I mean, and there's different ways to look at it. The main yeah. ones being on how you view Caesar and how you view Brutus. Right. Like I said, I don't really see a way that you can make Caesar into much of anything. I mean, what you can do is make him seem more like a hero or more like a villain, kind right. of. Right, but either way, he's a guy who's just concerned about how he looks. Well, yeah. He's sort of a person upon whom Brutus acts. 
mm-hmm. Caesar doesn't do much of anything at all. Uh, yeah, and, and the real question of the play is, was Brutus killing Caesar a good thing or a bad thing? Right. The, yeah, the, the real question is what Brutus's character is. is mm-hmm. Does his principles justify him, or do his principles make him a fool? Mm-hmm. Because... Certainly, the fact that he is a principled man is what compelled him to kill Caesar. But it's also what led him to kill Caesar in the stupidest possible way that led to their complete failure of their rebellion. Exactly. It's his, his larger principles were defeated by his smaller principles. He, he was unwilling to sacrifice even an iota of his honor to win the battle. Mm-hmm. Brutus is kind of just a dull guy, though, in the end. I mean, in the end, I think... I don't think Brutus is as great as everyone makes him out to be. Yeah. I think he's he's a guy who really wants to be a good guy, but just is bad at it. I think with Macbeth, for example, he's got the virtue of courage and the virtue of being a good soldier, and his flaw is ambition. The mm. problem with Brutus is that his virtue and his flaw are the same thing. Exactly. And so he's really only a one-note character. Mm-hmm. And Cassius is a much in- more interesting conspirator, because... Yeah. He's he moves things along. Yeah. So the thing with this play is that no one actually wants to be Brutus or Julius Caesar. In the most famous movie versions, Marlon Brando and Charlton Heston both choose the good role of Mark Antony. Yeah. Mark Antony is by far the best character. To well, be he in gets this all play. the good speeches. Yeah, and he gets to be the interesting character who cares about Julius Caesar, who like plots this plot to win over the people of Rome to take what is essentially mm-hmm. a crushing defeat and turn it into a victory. And we get to learn more about his story in Antony and Cleopatra. Yeah. For interpretations, we've got our one of our favorite comics, Hark a Vagrant, did a couple of comics about Julius Caesar. We'll link to that on our blog, bardcast.blogspot.com. And of course there are movie versions. The BBC did one while they were doing a movie of each Shakespeare play. Mm. And there's, a, as we said, a Marlon Brando version, a Charlton Heston version. There was actually a Denzel Washington version that was universally panned. That was a theater play. Was that? Yes. Oh. That was a theater performance. Ah, you're right. Yeah, I, from what I've read, Denzel Washington did a good job, but the play was just a mess. Mm-hmm. I think this is a play that's easy to fall into a mess because you're not sure who you're supposed to like. There's actually two Julius Caesar movies starring Charlton Heston as Antony set, that were made 20 years apart. Oh, I had no idea. Yeah, one in 1950 and one in 1970. Okay, so we saw a version of this play at the Guthrie. Yep. I think the first thing we've got to say is that the Guthrie, staying true to form, set it in modern day. Mm -hmm. And not just like, you know, kind of modern day, like today modern day. Yeah, of course they're wearing suits and ties. Of course they're wearing modern military clothing and they've got guns. Mm -hmm. Of course they're using letter openers instead of swords. Well, I didn't have any problem with that part. No, but this is just saying, of course they're going to do this. They go even farther than that, and they have Julius Caesar be Barack Obama. For no reason. I mean, it wasn't explicit, but he was... You know, they had, like, uh, posters similar to the Hope, Hope poster, posters, yeah. stuff like that. And, yeah. you know, they they never explicitly made it obvious, but it was pretty close to obvious. But he has those posters. It's apparently set in America. They had a Washington, D.C. background well, at one they, point. they still called it Rome. Yeah. Because they also had uh, backgrounds that were from Rome, too. Oh, and there was... Uh, one of the protesters had Occupy Rome as a uh, poster. <laughs> yeah, because everything's got to be topical for some reason. Yeah, I didn't have any problem with that. Apparently the play was designed as a way of appealing Shakespeare to children. 
Well, I don't know about children, but like younger people. Youngins, whippersnappers. Teenagers, probably. Yeah, teenagers. So, of course, the play opens with two different jokes about genitals that are purely done through acting, like guys making rude gestures, because there's no such line in the play. Shakespearean times, comedy, all about that. Yeah, that's true. Anyway, my personal take on this play, I think I've said this earlier, is that it works if you think of it as a history, where you think this is telling a story of something that happened in the past, not these characters are so interesting, or we should learn something about the nature of mankind from it. It's more like a lesson on what happened in the past, like familiarizing people with history, like that movie Amadeus. Oh, yeah, man, that that movie was... I like that movie. Really? Yeah, it's fun. I have a problem with its historical accuracy. Well... I've got a problem with this play's historical accuracy, so we're even. They're they're both historically inaccurate. Yeah. Anyway, what did you think? I liked it. I mean, again... The performance. Oh, yeah, I liked the performance, too. I mean, they, they trimmed down the play, cut out a couple of scenes. Mm-hmm. To be honest, they aren't really important scenes. Yeah. But it, it seemed to go by very quickly, and I, I mean, I've never seen this before, so I always just kind of assumed, oh, Caesar dies at the end of the play, of course. Yeah. <laughs> and in the middle of the play, everyone's just stabbing him, and I'm like... Hmm, I don't think he's going to get out of this one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is a little bit of a strange... The, the title really is deceptive, because mm-hmm. it's not about Julius Caesar. I think I think this is probably the only one of his plays that are a named person in it, that it's not really... A, well, Henry IV was not really about Henry IV. No, that's about Henry V. Yeah. Did you think about anything about Brutus in particular? Uh, I was not a fan of Brutus. He's just... He's dumb... He's easy to trick. He makes bad decisions all the time. Right. About being easy to trick, both Brutus and Julius Caesar and the mob are swayed by comically obvious yeah. rhetorical devices. Yep. That Partially, that's just because it's a play and you can't have a super nuanced argument, but it's a little bit over the top how easily swayed these people are. Mm-hmm. Especially Julius Caesar, who's supposed to be this master of the world. And someone's just like, no, you should probably do this. And he's okay. (laughs) This goes along with whatever anyone suggests, really. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I think it's a good play. Yeah. I mean, not a great play, but a good play. Yeah, that's and that's where people in general rate it. I think it's fun. I think that the characters are a little weak, but it's definitely a good show. And Mark Antony has some great speeches. Yeah. And that always helps the play. Mark Antony is the king of the play. So, I understand that you've read the comic book Kill Shakespeare. Yes, it's a two-volume comic book. Yep. Uh, And it's okay. I mean... You know, it's fun seeing all the historical allusions and such. Mm-hmm. I read the first book. It didn't really do much for me. I think part part of that is because comic book takes so long. Nothing really happens. And then when something does happen, it's done and over really quickly. See, I love comics, but I just was not a huge fan of this one. Right. Any particular criticism? Um. Yeah, well, first off, they find Shakespeare, and Shakespeare's just like, yeah, I'm Shakespeare. I'm gonna f- I can fix everything if I want to, but I don't want to. That's very odd. Well, because he's just like, you kind of have to read it, but he comes off as just a really boring character. Ah. And then, like, eventually the standard thing is, but you have to. And he's like, well, okay. (laughs) That's, yeah, that's pretty lazy. Plus, I mean, Iago just gets, every minute is just a different thing with him. Like, in the first book, he's great. He's He's got this great quadruple cross going on. And the second play is just like, yeah, I'm dumb, and I'm trying to kill people for no reason. <laughs> He's just oh, well. being bad for badness's sake. Exactly. Inse- instead of being like th- this great manipulator, he's just like, I'm evil now. And, and then, but then he's like, but I'm not actually evil. I'm just acting evil. <laughs> and then he uh, like lets himself get killed by Othello. 
because he in the end he repented but it's just like why did you but you repented earlier and it seemed really genuine why are you suddenly acting evil because i'm iago whatever <laughs> he's got to be a bad guy because that's who he is right so i read actually reread the book the shakespeare wars when i say i read it i had to skip through parts of it because it's so badly written here's the thing the shakespeare wars is an interesting book with interesting subjects but is also a very badly written book that has very poorly chosen subjects what's it about the idea of the book is he provides a guide to why you should care about shakespeare in the modern day initially and also as a separate portion what's what the current debates are in shakespearean the shakespearean world mm-hmm. like whether we should have a particular line at the end of king lear or not right but what ends up happening is ron rosenbaum the author of the book ends up spending ridiculous amounts of time talking about a conversation he had with some someone or talking about a time that he said something to a guy felt bad about it later wrote a letter to the person apologizing and then had another conversation apologizing for it each of these conversations and letters being transcribed in full so he jumps all over the place some of the things he talks about are unbelievably tedious very rarely there is something interesting in there so it's worth looking at if you're a crazy person Hmm. but it's very poorly written. Uh, I've got a book review that I'm going to put up on the blog. And we'll also link to it on for, for, where you can get it on Amazon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if you want to buy it and give us a little money through Amazon. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the book is all over the place with occasionally fla- flashes of something good, but mostly it's just unbelievably self-obsessive writing where we learn a lot about how Ron Rosenbaum thinks that he's very clever, but learn very little about Shakespeare. Just one other note before we go. A while ago, I was trying to talk about how Shakespeare will put speeches into people's mouths just because he likes having good speeches, and it doesn't mm-hmm. matter like where he puts them. And I gave as an example in As You Like It when he says, uh, all the world's a stage, that speech. Yeah. That is a very bad example because actually it's a it's perfect characterization for that intellectual strange person to say all the world's a stage at that time. So you win that round, guy on the internet. Right, so we haven't decided what our next episode is going to be about. If you guys have any input about that, please let us know. Hopefully the next for the next play we might do Antony and Cleopatra, just to keep a sense of continuity, kind of. Yeah, I think that would be appropriate. If you want to help us out, please go to iTunes and give us a good review. That's basically the only way that we are easily found through searches. It's all through how many reviews somebody gets. iTunes can't tell how many people downloaded, for example. Mm-hmm. And if you want to see the notes for this episode or previous episodes or see what we're offering in terms of resources or if you want to contact us, you can go to bardcast.blogspot.com where we've got all sorts of different things available. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time. Yep.